0: If you're able, please stand and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, two verses For now, then we're going to dig into this passage. New King James Version, Matthew 26, 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anybody know that's true? So I want to talk to you tonight on the subject. I don't feel like praying. You can be seated. Let's look at your neighbor right now and say, I don't feel like praying. That sounds really sacrilegious, doesn't it? I won't ask for you to raise your hand or shout out an answer, but have you ever said that before? Like, I just don't feel like praying. I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like whatever that spiritual discipline might be. We know that God created prayer as a partnership between man and himself. That prayer is God's means Of bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth. The Lord's prayer or a template for prayer was given by Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray, because God invented prayer, we pray the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. And the will of God into our lives. Someone told me years ago that we hold checks on the bank of heaven. That we fail to cash at the window of prayer. God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. But those promises are often enacted when we go to God in prayer. We all realize that prayer is a major theme of the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and I'm just going to briefly pass by some scriptures, not taking a lot of time to drill down into them. The Lord said, ask and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and will not doubt in your heart, it will be done. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire in prayer, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Paul said. Be careful for nothing. Don't be worried about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth understanding. Shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. James asked the question. Is any afflicted? Let him pray. Are you merry? Sing psalms. If you're sick. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing with oil. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise him up. If he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then James tells us that Elijah, Elias in the King James New Testament was a man just like us, a man of like passions. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three years. He prayed again, and it rained on the earth. We, the Lord wants us to understand the power of prayer. Jesus said that we have confidence that when we pray anything according to his will, that he hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of Him. Paul taught us to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The Bible said that we can have prayer, a faith like Jesus did. He cursed the fig tree, it withered away. The disciples were amazed by that. And Jesus said, that's nothing. If you have faith and doubt not. You shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. James taught us that if we ask in faith, nothing wavering, that we will have answers to prayer. Paul taught that first of all, prayers, supplications, intercessions, giving him thanks should be made for all men. In the book of Luke, when Luke gave his rendition of the Lord's Prayer, he went past the Lord's Prayer when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And he taught them the importance of praying and not stopping. He gave an example of a man who would have company come to his house and need something to eat. He would go to his neighbor and ask for bread. But the neighbor would say, I've got the door shut, my kids are in the bed with us, and we cannot give you anything to eat. But the man standing outside would continue to knock and knock and knock. And Jesus said, not because he's a good neighbor, but because that man did not give up, he will rise and give him as many loaves of bread as he wants. The Bible word for praying without ceasing is called importunity. It means never giving up in prayer. That's the kind of prayer that we need to understand God honors. In that same passage Jesus said, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you and everyone that uh, excuse me, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open. everyone that asks receiveth receives everyone that seeks finds and to him that knocks it shall be open. Paul taught that the Spirit makes intercession for us, with groanings that cannot be uttered. So there are times when we pray in the Holy Ghost according to the will of God. Now, I've kind of rushed through those passages on prayer just to remind you that the Bible is filled with teaching on prayer, that God invented prayer, that God has given us the opportunity to access His power through prayer, but sometimes. I don't feel like praying. So, should you just tell God, Sorry God, I don't feel like praying. No no one really wants to admit that or would never tell God, I don't feel like praying. If you happen to believe that you pray too much or that you're too close to God, I have another message for you on delusion. <laughs> Jesus in his humanity was a man of prayer. The Bible says that his baptism, he prayed and the heavens were opened. Luke 6 tells us he went into a mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. Mark 1 says that he rose a great while before day. He went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Mark 6 tells us that Jesus sent the disciples away and he departed into a mountain to pray. Luke 5 tells us that when Jesus had a fame that went out about him, that he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Luke 9 tells us that he was alone praying and the disciples with him when he asked the disciples, Who do the people say that I am? The prayer life of Jesus was contagious. Jesus was praying. Luke 11 records this. And when he stopped praying, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. When Jesus saw the vulnerability of Simon Peter to Satan... He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Looking back on the ministry of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said, that in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard, And that he feared, in other words, he had confidence in the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful and Jesus was a man of prayer. In Matthew 26, there is a story of Jesus' prayer at the end of his life. This passage, in some form, is found in all the Gospels. Matthew 26, Mark 14... Luke 22 and John 18 in a single verse. The setting of this prayer meeting took place after Jesus left what we would call the Last Supper with his disciples. This would be an epic night in his life. There was a Passover observance in an upper room. He washed the disciples' feet. He predicted the betrayal of Judas. He predicted the denial of Peter. He established the memorial of communion. He taught precepts to the disciples in the upper room. He prayed for his disciples. John 17 records Jesus' prayer of intercession. And at the end of that night in the upper room, Jesus with the eleven, Judas had now departed to go betray him. Jesus left with the eleven and went to the garden of Gethsemane. I've already told you that Jesus prayed a lot of places. He prayed on, a, prayed on a mountain. He prayed in the wilderness. He prayed in solitary places. But it seems that he had a preferred place to pray. Judas knew about this place. According to John 18, 1 and 2, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was sort of a prayer room out in a garden on a hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem. This was not the first time Jesus had been there or had he been there with his disciples. He went to this hilltop grove of olive trees and there he prayed. As a side note, I was wondering about this. If someone was looking for you and couldn't find you. Would they perhaps find you in a place of prayer? I mentioned to you that the Garden of Gethsemane was an olive grove. I've had the privilege of going to Israel once in my lifetime and I've said it here before teaching or preaching and said it to people privately. But of all the places that you visit in the Holy Land, I was most moved by Gethsemane of any other place. Those ancient olive trees are large and gnarled, and they tell you that many of them that are there go back to the times of Jesus Christ. So you know you're in an authentic place, the Garden of Gethsemane, looking at the olive trees and imagining Jesus here on the night in which... He was betrayed. I was uh, moved to tears and prayer there as I stood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because I had studied the the Gospels before, not the Book of Acts, the Gospels, I knew what Gethsemane means. It means olive press or oil press. It comes from the idea that at Gethsemane they would harvest the olives. And there they would take those olives and put them in a press And they would crush the flesh of those olives and they would render out the oil. It would be at Gethsemane where the human will of Jesus Christ would be crushed and it would render the anointing that would take him to Calvary. You could say that Jesus died to his will in Gethsemane so he could die on the cross in Calvary. Gethsemane is an amazing place. Matthew 26, 36. We're going through this passage now. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, stay here and watch with me. Jesus leaves eight of the disciples at some spot in the garden. He takes Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, who are with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he goes a little farther into the garden, and he tells them, would you just stay here and watch with me for one hour? He goes on a little farther. Luke says he went a stone's throw. I'm not sure if that was from the original eight or from Peter, James, and John. But he goes a little farther and he begins to pray. But we learn from this passage, verse 39, that the disciples did not feel like praying. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, that's a good word to have in your vocabulary, by the way. Years ago, I preached here a message on the word. Nevertheless, a good old King James word. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's a good prayer to pray. I want to do this, but I don't think that is the will of God. And I realize that the will of God is not just different often than my will, but it is better than my will. It is superior to my will. It is a will that sees an outcome, and God is protecting me from a pitfall. And if I will surrender to the will of God, I will take the right path, and I will see the right outcome, even if it is a painful process between here and here. And there you may remember in the early days of Jesus's ministry when he was baptized in Jordan He was driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he fasted 40 days Afterward to be tempted of the devil One of the temptations that Satan offered him was to show him in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world If you will just defer, if you will just kind of walk away from God and you'll serve me, I'm summarizing this I will give you the kingdoms of the world no pain, lots of gain but at the end of the Bible we understand that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ we realize what Paul said in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of things in heaven, of things on the earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I do not know what would have happened if Jesus would have succumbed to that temptation in the, in the wilderness, but the answer is that he did not. And now he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and before him he sees the pain of the cross. He recognizes the price that must be paid. And so he prays his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He pauses his prayer. He gets up from where he's praying. He walks back over to where he has left Peter, James, and John. The inner circle. The three closest Disciples to Jesus Christ These guys are You know the army rangers The navy seals Of the disciples of Jesus Christ Verse 40 Then he came to the disciples And found them sleeping And he kind of picks on Simon Peter This is the downside of being the spokesman You also get to hear the words to you, Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? This must have been embarrassing. These are the men who just a little while ago have said to him when he foretold that they would, you know, the shepherd would be scattered, smitten, and the sheep would be scattered, and he foretold his death. And they said to him, "You know, we'll go with you." Peter said this first. "I'll go with you to death," and all the other disciples chimed in and said, "We'll go with you all the way. You can count on us." They're not having to die right now. No one swinging any swords. He just says, "Would you, could you not watch with me one hour?" But they didn't feel like praying. So they slept. Peter. James and John. Those sons of thunder. Are snoozing. And then Jesus rebukes them. And warns them. In verse 41. Watch. And pray. Lest you. Enter into temptation. The spirit. Indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Initially, Jesus had asked them to watch with him for one hour. The prayer request, you know, if you want to call it that, was I need you to pray with me. You can't imagine the stress that Jesus is under in this moment. And he invites his three closest friends To hold him up in prayer For just an hour But they didn't feel like praying and then he tells them The spirit indeed is willing But the flesh is weak Now Their intentions were good I believe they really meant it And now Jesus tells them that not only do you need to pray for me, but you need to pray for yourself that you don't enter into temptation. Because I know you mean well, your spirit is willing, but you also have weak flesh. You're not as strong as you think you are. You cannot do this without prayer. And Jesus said, except you abide in me, you can do nothing. So prayer gives you power to not enter into temptation. There are echoes of the Lord's prayer into this warning to pray in this passage. Matthew 6.13, Jesus said, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He had told them earlier in his ministry that when you pray, you should pray that you would not enter into temptation. I don't quote from commentaries very much, but it's important here. The spirit-flesh contrast does not appear anywhere else in the book of Matthew. It's typical of the writing of Paul. Paul speaks about the flesh many times as as the sinful nature, but here flesh is not referring to that. It's talking about human weakness, not carnal, sinful nature. The spirit is willing, but your human nature, without the power of God, Empowering you is just weak. You can't do this in your own power. No matter how well intentioned you are. So this flesh is not so much evil or something opposed to the will of God. It represents human weakness against the desire of the inner self to do the will of God. How many times have we watched someone who had initial enthusiasm, professions of loyalty, proclamations of all the things that they were going to do, only too often for them to succumb to human lethargy or the fear of consequences. The Spirit is willing. This is kind of a positive note. I want to do the right thing. Jesus said this to the disciples. We can mark it down for ourselves that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He had just come from a time of prayer where he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The flesh doesn't want to go through this, but I need to pray so I can get through this. Peter's problem is not a lack of enthusiasm love for Jesus but he does lack moral stamina you know he swings his sword in the garden cuts off the ear of Malchus a servant of the high priest and then around a fire watching at a distance as Jesus goes through the trial a young girl asks him if he's a disciple he denies the Lord three times he curses and swears The spirit indeed is willing And oh my goodness, the flesh is so weak. Verse 42, again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, "Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. In this second prayer, it appears that Jesus, his human nature, is reconciled and fully submitted to the will of his Father. In the ministry of Jesus, he made clear declarations that he had come into the world to die. His face was set for Jerusalem. He told the disciples that he would die. He came to the world to die. He knew that he would come to this moment, but but in this moment, in this moment, he had to wrestle through to complete submission to the will of God. I want to just pause here to say that in our lives, we really mean well, we tell the Lord we'll do things, but when you come to a crossroads in your life, when you come to a crisis point in your life, you better stop, pray, ask God to give you the courage, the strength spiritually to act on your profession, on your promises because when you really tell him you'll go anywhere and do anything or whatever it is that you promise him there'll be a moment when you have to kind of pay up I know it probably is a bad illustration but I say initially you tell the Lord in a wholesale way I'll go anywhere do anything I'll take up my cross and follow you oh yeah but then one of the gospels says take up your cross daily When you start paying full retail, certain times in your life, when you've got to act on your commitment to obedience to Him. Jesus, spiritually, is holding this cup in His hands. Not literally. And there's a lot of speculation, a lot of theologians wonder what was in the cup. What was the cup? He's holding this cup, you know, spiritually. And He's saying, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink this. But if it's your will, then I will drink this cup. Death was in the cup. But to me, of all the things that I see that were the most repulsive to Jesus, you know, the Bible said in Hebrews 12, for the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down on the right hand of God. He saw the joy on the other side of the cross. But to my thinking, and I think it's broader than any one thing, when he looked in that cup, it wasn't just the sufferings of Calvary, but it was becoming sin. Here is God Almighty in flesh, the sinless Lamb of God. He had never had an evil thought. He had never committed an evil deed. And yet on the cross, all of our transgressions were put on him and nailed to him. For the Bible said, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So to my way of thinking becoming sin having to say my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me? Because holy God cannot dwell in someone who has become sin and uh, he took the curse and gave his life on the cross. The only way to deal with the cup is to drink it, and uh, he did. Gethsemane, as I said earlier, was preparation for his body to die on the cross. This is the olive press. This is the squeezing of the human will, the crushing of the spirit to Released the fragrance of anointing and the oil all through the Bible. You know, oil is symbolic of anointing and the power of God. Crushing experience. Jesus is in agony. He is praying. And where are his closest friends in this moment? Matthew 26, 43. And he came and found them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. Matthew and Mark both say that they were sleeping because their their eyes were heavy. You have to realize that these were not weak men. Peter, James, and John, prior to following Jesus, were fishermen. Rugged, tough, hands in the nets, fishermen. These are guys who can work all night, toiling at their nets, catch nothing, stay up the next day, and go fishing again at the command of Jesus. So I don't want you to think these are weak guys, and I'm kind of joining Brother uh, Mahaney that didn't want to go to work and had a craving for fried chicken if you were here Sunday. That was so funny. Their eyes were heavy. But Dr. Luke, you know, Luke the physician who wrote Luke Acts, he has an insight into the fatigue of this inner circle of disciples. Luke twenty two forty five. 45, I want you to see this. When he rose up from prayer, and by the way, Luke does not tell us one, two, three times like Matthew does. He just tells us he prayed and then he went, so I'm not positive which time, this would have referred to of the three times Jesus went away and prayed. Luke twenty two forty five. 45. When he rose up from prayer and he had come to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Maybe it was the perceived failure of their hopes and dreams of a triumphant leader who would overthrow the Roman government and They would, as they asked, sit on thrones with him. You know, James and John asked, their mother asked for them, can one sit on the right hand and one on the left hand? They kind of missed that gap between Calvary and the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth when he sets up his millennial kingdom. So I don't really know what they were going through. Maybe it was the pressure that they were feeling that they couldn't put their finger on. But I was struck by this. They were sleeping From sorrow. Emotionally drained. Spent. And empty. No wonder. And pardon my emotion tonight. We're talking about Gethsemane. It's hard to talk about this. And not be uh, moved in myself. So. These men are overcome by the sorrow of this moment. And they didn't feel like praying. Matthew 26, 44. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying these same words. Now I know you know this. Many of you do. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible said that his sweat became his great drops of blood. You can read this and study this, but under tremendous duress, it is possible for the capillaries near the skin to burst, and for blood to be mingled with sweat. His sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. There's no crown of thorns on his head. but It seems that he has dots of blood bleeding through. The pores of his skin. Now, the prayer meeting is over. Verses 45 and 46. He came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people at a moment of eternal destiny. How could they really wrap their brain around this moment? They did not feel like praying. Physically exhausted, their eyes were heavy. They were sleeping for sorrow. They knew the biblical teaching on prayer. They heard and saw the prayer life of Jesus. They knew he got up early in the morning to pray. They knew at times he prayed all night long. They knew he would go up into a mountain and pray. He even rescued them. He saw them through the storm from a mountaintop and walked on the water to them. They knew all about that. They knew to pray when there's no answer in sight that you pray and don't faint, that you pray prayers of importunity. But on this night, they would not see the great drops of blood as they first appeared, the agony of Gethsemane. They were sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. They were emotionally exhausted. I can reason from the grand plan of God that perhaps Jesus... Had to go here alone. I've learned that no one else can die for you but you. No one can give their will completely over to the will of God but you. And I can only do that for me. And I I can rationalize that they were sleeping and Jesus had to be there alone and Calvary was a lonely experience. Gethsemane was a lonely experience. An angel would come to Jesus in Gethsemane. The angel would strengthen him, but the angel would not strengthen them. But but don't miss the point of this message tonight. That perhaps the time when you need to pray the most Is when you don't feel like praying. Maybe when your emotions are dead. Maybe when you don't feel it. Maybe then. Is when you really need to pray. If you read this story. There's no way you could say that the disciples get a pass. They get a bye for sleeping, when he asked them, could you not watch with me one hour? Their eyes were heavy, sleeping for sorrow. And I just want to remind you that prayer is not the result of an emotion. I believe there are triggers of prayer. Someone said that often depression is the trigger of intercession, that God may give you a heaviness, a burden to pray, I do believe in responding to a prompting to pray. But if you wait till you feel like praying, you probably don't pray very much. Feelings are terribly unreliable. And emotionally oriented people, they pray when they feel good about it and And they don't when they don't. Maybe they pray when things are good or pray when things are bad, but prayer is not the habit of their life. Prayer is something they do either when they're in a bind or when they're in church or when it is convenient. But otherwise, they're sort of asleep at the wheel. When they need to be praying most, they don't feel like praying. So they don't. James told us that if we would draw nigh to God, that he would draw nigh to you. He taught us to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy unto him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So when you don't feel like praying, make a habit of prayer. Seek the Lord in private prayer. Pray in corporate prayer meetings that are hosted at our church because there's exponential power in prayer where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. And if any two of you agree on anything is touching, God will do it of them, the Bible says. And that's why we have corporate prayer. That's Gordon, an evangelical lay minister who lived in the, eight, the late 1800s and early 1900s quote, that I've kept in my mind, the greatest thing anyone can do for God and man is pray. It is not the only thing, but it is the chief thing. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer or those who can explain about prayer, but I mean those people who take time and pray. And the Lord said to Solomon in the night, if my people, which are called by my name, 1st 2nd Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You may or may not be at a crossroads in your life. You may not be in a Garden of Gethsemane experience. I believe that nationally we are at a spiritual crossroads in our country. Regardless of your political affiliation, the powers of hell are hard at work to undermine the moral pillars of our nation. And in your own life, your workplace, in your neighborhood, in our school systems, there is an all-out onslaught against you. Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but thank God that someone knows how to pray. And that God will intervene. Would you please stand right now? Lift up your hands to the Lord and your voice to the Lord. And would you open your heart to God? And would you say, Lord, I come to you right now. And I humble myself to pray. I humble myself, Lord, to seek your face. I turn from my wicked ways, Lord. I open my heart to you right now. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. If you're able to join me in the altar, would you come? And let's pray the prayer of the Lord's Prayer. Pray for the kingdom of God to come. If you feel more comfortable kneeling at your seat, you're welcome to do that. We have music that we'll play, but I think we'll just mainly pray right now before we sing anything. Let's just pray. Would you pray for the kingdom of God to come? And would you pray for the will of God to be done? Would you pray for your daily needs? Would you pray for forgiveness? Would you pray that you would not enter into temptation? Would you remind yourself to pray that you are acknowledging the kingdom and power and glory belongs to Him? If you would have to admit right now that right now you don't feel like praying, maybe that's the best indicator I could ever give you. And it's Gethsemane time. It's submission time. It's coming back to the cross time. Let's lift our voices and pray now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near.